Jesus said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Pastor Ashley Smith. Let's just bow our heads quickly um, as uh, we open God's Word. Father in heaven, I just want to pray that you be with me in my words here this morning. Um, I pray, Lord, that you may just shut us into your presence. I pray that we may hear your voice, and I pray that we may draw close, closer to you, Lord Jesus. This is the prayer that I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to open up with me to Daniel chapter 3. Um, there was a theme that I was going to be beginning today, or there was a sermon series that I was going to be starting. However, I've changed my mind, and the reason why I've changed my mind is because I wanted to preach something that, well, I needed to hear myself. And, and so this is a selfish sermon for Ashley because I needed this. And because I needed this, I'm going to make you listen to this now. I wanted to study something that was encouraging and relevant to me at this point, you know, um, in my journey with Jesus. And God led me to this chapter this week. And I listened to a sermon um, that was preached, uh, would have been preached 60, 60 odd years ago by Martin Luther King. Um, and the sermon in title was entitled, But If Not. Um, I encourage you this afternoon, if you get a chance, to go onto YouTube and to, to type in But If Not by Martin Luther King and actually listen to that sermon by him. It's a powerful sermon. I'm, I'm not going to preach it the way that he preached it because I'm, number one, I'm not African-American. I don't want to pretend to preach like that. Um, I'm going to fight in my own armour. But I really want to encourage you to, to listen to that sermon. It's been a great encouragement for me this week. And after listening to it, God impressed upon my heart that you need to study this and and present it to the church family. And so that's what I'm doing here this morning. So in Daniel chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, I'm going to read this, this scripture. This is a story that many of us are familiar with. Um, it's a story where Nebuchadnezzar acts very brazenly against the vision that God had given to him in chapter 2. In uh, that chapter, we, we see that Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and the, the dream is a great image, and this image is a, is, a, is, is a statue that's made of different metals combined together. And this idol, or this statue, is completely destroyed by the end of the chapter, which represents God's kingdom and how God's kingdom conquers over the kingdoms of men. And as humanity... All that we have to look forward to is not the rising and falling of secular nations throughout Earth's history, but what we have to look forward to as humanity is the coming of the kingdom of God, where it will replace all other kingdoms and it will usher in eternal peace. In chapter 3, we see Nebuchadnezzar defying that dream and the vision that God had given him. In chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, this is what happens. It says, Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its width 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And King Nebuchadnezzar sent word together to gather the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counsellors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So here we have the king of the world at this point in time, King Nebuchadnezzar, and he calls everybody, 
There wasn't anybody else that could be called that hadn't been called to the plains of Dura for the specific purpose of bowing down to the golden statue that he had set up. This golden statue was in direct defiance to what God had outlined in the previous chapter. So all the people of note, everybody who had a position of authority, everybody who worked for King Nebuchadnezzar, whether it was a wise man or whether it was a treasurer, they all assembled on the plains of Dura for the specific purpose of bowing down to this golden image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. In fact, what you see repeated throughout this chapter is the emphasis that Nebuchadnezzar had set this image up. It says the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up, the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up, the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. There is no doubt, there should be no doubt for us, the reader, as we read this chapter, the one who is defying God's will. But yet at the same time, you see God simultaneously pursuing Nebuchadnezzar and trying to save him, trying to redeem him, trying to give him a picture of his wonderful nature and who he is. In fact, the way that God persists with Nebuchadnezzar from day dot all the way through to his conversion experience is a wonderful representation of what Jesus does for us. But God has to get through some hurdles with Nebuchadnezzar before he can get to the end of chapter 4. We're still in chapter 3, so Nebuchadnezzar has a lot to learn. And so everybody's assembled together. In fact, it says in Patriarchs, I mean Prophets and Kings, it says that Babylon had never before produced anything so imposing and majestic as this resplendent statue. It's 60 cubits high and it's 6 cubits wide. It's a big image. It's a big statue. I mean, Babylon was known for creating great feats. You know, they, they had the, the hanging gardens of Babylon, which was one of the ancient wonders in the, the, the world back then. In fact, the city of Babylon was a, was a wonderful city. They had a river that ran through the city, the, the river Euphrates. They had four walls that went around the outside of the city of Babylon. In fact, if you wanted to get to the inner heart of Babylon and, and, and conquer the palace where the king was, you'd have to go through 25 meters of wall just to get to the inner sanctum of the kingdom. They had multiple temples to their many different gods, the pantheon of gods in which they worshipped. The, 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 the highest god that they worshipped was the god Marduk. In fact, in his temple and in his temple alone, historians have said that there was approximately 10 tonne of gold in that temple. How much is 10 tonne of gold? Do you know how much a land cruiser weighs? Two and a half. Land cruisers are pretty big. Ten ton of gold, and that's just in one temple. Ancient historians have actually used a bit of exaggeration to explain how much wealth and splendor the Babylonians have had. They, they actually said that there was more gold in Babylon than dust, as a sense of exaggeration. And so right here it says that this statue, which was made of gold, in, in, the, in the vision that was given in chapter 2, it was just the head that was of gold, but in chapter 3 we have the whole thing of gold. From head to toe, it's gold, reinforcing the supremacy of his kingdom. It's an everlasting kingdom. It's a kingdom that will never be destroyed. And a way of getting his, I guess, his subjects to show homage or dominion to him is to get them to bow down to this statue. To see who is on his side and who is not on his side. A line is drawn in the sand. Who will bow to the image that I have set up? And everyone is there. Every single person of note is standing before this statue. 
And then what happens in verse 4, a herald cries out and it says this, to all the people it says, to you it is commanded, O peoples, nations and languages, that at the time you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, harp, lyre and psaltery, and symphony with all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar, we see these words again, has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. Immediately. There are no second chances. It's life or death. You either show allegiance to me or your life will be exterminated. There's no in-between here. And so the horn plays, the flute plays, the lyre plays, whatever those things are. I know the horn and the flute, the soft, whatever those things are, they all play together in unison. And that was the decided moment where it was your, not opportunity, it was your decree by the king to bow. And who would defy the king of Babylon? I mean, who would defy the king who had erected such a great and splendid statue to express and to show his dominion and his power? Who would defy such a king? Oh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Three young Jewish boys on the plain of Jura when the sound went out, when the sultry, the harp, the lyre, the sackbut, you name it all, the weird and wacky instruments of the Middle East in those times, when they all resounded, the three young men stood firm, steadfast. Why did they stand steadfast? Because church, they believed in the God of heaven. And they believed in principle. And they would not budge because what God has said God meant and what God meant was important. When God says something, church, he means what he says. When he etches it on stone, he means what he says. When he says that you shall have no other gods before me, he meant what he said. When he says you shall not make for yourself a graven image of any likeness that is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the sea under the earth. You shall not make those images or bow down. He meant what he said, church. And these three boys, and I want you to imagine it for a second, who were displaced from their homeland, who have seen the destruction of their temple, which in essence is their civilization and the hub of all that they are as a people, who have been forsaken by their comrades who have all bowed, their family they will never see again, they will never go home. They choose to stand for what is right because it is right and leave the consequences with God. To follow the king was to demonstrate allegiance to the king. To dis disobey was to commit treason. And when the herald says, whoever, whoever hears this noise is to bow, it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter where you've come from, it doesn't matter what position you hold in the kingdom of Babylon, you are called to bow. And I believe that for every single one of us here today, at some point in our lives, we will be called to bow. Maybe that has happened for us at some point. Now, I'm not speaking literally where somebody calls us out to the middle of the cane paddock over there, or it's a bit hard to go in the middle of there, the middle of the paddock over there, and there's a great big statue, and they say, bow or else. That's not what I'm talking about, church. We will all be confronted with situations of compromise 
And the decision will be ours. Do we compromise our convictions for the sake of convenience or do we stand for right because it is right and leave the consequences with God? We will all be called to bow. But at the same time, we are all called to stand. To stand, church. To stand with God. In fact, this is the most powerful thing in Scripture. You may stand for God in this world, in this life, and it may appear to be as if you're with the minority. But if you're standing with God, guess what? You're in the majority. Because God is in the minority. And God stands with you. And it's not just God who's standing with you. It's the heavenly host who is standing with you. And when Elisha was confronted by the Syrian army and his servant was worried about the, <laughs> the numerous army which was coming towards them and just him and his mate. Do you know what Elisha says? Show him, Lord. And God shows him the angels, the army, the host of heaven that is spread in the sky above. The things that we don't see, church... But the eternal realities are there and present before us. Sometimes we don't believe in the things of eternity as we ought to. Because we don't believe in the promises of God as we ought to. What God has promised he will do. And when God promises that he will never leave you nor forsake you, you can take that promise to the bank and you can believe it all the way. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, the music sounds, they stand and they stand steadfast. They're resolute in their decision. There's no wavering there. They affirm for their convictions and they believe that they will stand steadfast regardless of the consequences. They can see the smoke billowing out of the fiery furnace. They can see it. And they know when everybody bows down, all eyes will turn on them. There's nowhere to hide and they know it. Oh, how easy it would have been, church, to bow. I'll bow now and then I'll go back home and I'll get on my knees and I'll pray to God and ask for forgiveness and he'll forgive me. But that's not the question, church. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego would rather do right than preserve their lives. They would rather do right than keep their position of influence, their position of prominence. They would rather do right than keep their job. They would... Obviously, in the story, they had a position of influence. They had a position of authority. They were well-respected by the king. And you want to know why they were well-respected by the king? Because he gave them a, a second chance. Have a look at what happens here. There are individuals, individuals who are looking at Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego with suspicion. And they bring the news to the king and the king is full of rage. And then Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego are brought before the king. And in verse 14, this is what happens. Nebuchadnezzar spoke to them, saying... Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which, see those words again, I have set up? Now if you are ready at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery in symphony with all kinds of music, and you shall fall down and worship the image which I have made, good. 
But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And this is the question. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Nebuchadnezzar puts himself on par of deity. Who is the God who will deliver you from me? These guys were young, church. They were in, in probably in their late 20s, early 30s. When we look at the chrono, chronological account of Daniel. I love their response. Look at this. This will give you some gusto for whatever you're going through in life. Look at this. Verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or as known by God, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Let me just pause there for a second. It's very easy to be brave when you're standing in front of the mirror at home. Isn't it? When you're preparing a speech or something, and you st- or maybe you, you freak yourself out, I don't know. But when you're standing in front of the mirror at home, it's just you and the mirror, you and yourself. It's very easy as you rehearse a speech when you're going in before your boss or you're going in before I know, a family member or you have to defend your case. It's very easy to stand there and speak to yourself. And to be bold and brazen. But to be standing in the presence of the king of the world while the fiery furnace is cooking away and all eyes on you, it's very, very difficult to be bold. Which tells me something about Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. That they had done this before. That they knew what it was like to stand. And they made their lives a habit of standing for the right. And so when this opportunity came, it was just a natural impulse. Why? Because they'd done it time after time after time. And it's just who they were. They were individuals who stood. Have a look at what they say. We have no need to answer you in this matter. This is the king of the world that they're speaking to. And by the way, they know what this kind of king is like. You see in chapter 2, What's he want to do to all the wise men that can't give him the dream and the interpretation? He wants to kill them, and not just them. Who else? Their families. So they know who they're dealing with here. They're not naive. In verse 17, they say this. If that is the case, well, if what is the case? Well, who is the God who can deliver you from my hands? I'm going to throw you into the fiery furnace. They say, if that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. In other words, our God is greater than you. But this is where they continue. But if not... Let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. In other words, our God is able to deliver us, and we fully believe that he is capable of doing so. But even if he doesn't, we're still not going to bow. Even if it costs us our lives, even if it costs us everything, we're not going to bow. But if not, In Martin Luther King's sermon, he says that there are two kinds of faith. There's if faith, 
And if faith means this, I will follow only if such and such. I will stand for God only if he does this for me. I will put God first in my life only if everything goes well for me. I will go with God all the way. I will read my Bible and I'll pray only if I get this special feeling in my heart. And he says the other kind of faith is though faith. And that's the faith of Job where he says, Though he slay me, yet I will trust him. I want to ask you this morning, church family, what kind of faith do you have? Is it an if faith or is it a though faith? An if faith that sways depending on the situation or the circumstances or a though faith that says regardless of what life throws at me, I am going to put God first in my life. It doesn't mean that it's easy because things go well and things go bad. Depends what kind of card you're given, what kind of hand you're dealt But through it all, church, you can have joy because joy is different to happiness. Happiness comes and goes with the moment. It's very flippant. You go to the store and you buy something and you feel happy because you've got something. And then you get sick of that thing and it goes from the living room to the garage and you never get it again. Then you buy something else and you have happiness again because happiness comes and goes with the season, but joy is permanent. Jesus said to his disciples just before he went to the cross in John chapter 15 and verse 11, he says, These words I have spoken unto you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy might be full. Joy is not a feeling that goes up and down. Joy is a resolute standing with God where you believe that he's faithful, he's able, and he's good, and he's love. That's what joy is. Joy is knowing that this world is not your home. Joy is knowing that God has a better place prepared for you where he says, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, then I would have told you. I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, then I will come again to receive you to myself, that where I am there you may be also. That's what joy is. Joy is looking beyond the present situation as Jesus did to his disciples and saying, look what I have for you. This is not the ideal church. There is something that will be the ideal that I am making for you on that day. But if not, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they had position, they had privilege, they had security, and they had all of this in a foreign land, but they were willing, church, they were willing to give it all up for principle's sake. And not just for principle's sake, but for God's sake. I want to read you a statement from Great Controversy. It says we should choose right. Because it is. Right. And leave the consequences with God. Imagine if that's how we governed our lives. Imagine if that was the watchword. Imagine if that was the motto. Imagine if that was our life's calling to do what was right because it was right and leave the consequences with him. Because the greatest want of the world is the want of men. Men who will not be bought or sold. Men who in their inmost souls are true and honest. Men who do not fear to call sin by its right name. Men whose conscience is as true to duty as the needle is to the pole. Men who will stand for the right though the heavens fall. 
That's what though faith looks like. Though he slay me, yet I trust him. Open with me to Hebrews chapter 11. I want to show you something from this chapter. Hebrews chapter 11, and I'm going to take you to the hallway of faith. The hallway of faith where, where the author of Hebrews, I believe Paul, is he's outlining all the individuals throughout earth's history up to his point, the great patriarchs and matriarchs of faith, where God has done mighty things through them. I mean, you can read the, the biblical account and you can read that you know, people follow God and God bless them. And then you can read other instances where people follow God and it didn't turn out the way that they expected, but they always believed that he was faithful. It didn't mean that they didn't ask questions. It didn't mean that they didn't wrestle with God, but they knew that he was with them. And in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 32, I want to read this to you and I want you to see the contrast. It says this, But what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak, Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets. And listen to this. This is the contrast. Who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again. Doesn't that sound triumphant to you? It's easy to have faith when those things are happening. Look what happens next. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Where's their joy found? In the resurrection that's to come. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy, they wandered in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. And we'll read to the end of the chapter. And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. So here in this instance, the hallway of faith, you have those who had great victories given to them by the hand of God and it's easy to have faith when God is doing things like that but then on the other instance you have those where the victory wasn't so evident for them and things weren't going the way that they expected it's a lot more difficult to have faith in situations like that but if you're standing for God in the smaller things in life, when the greater test comes, there's the, the greater ability because you fortified your mind and your heart that the natural impulse within you is to stand at those moments when everybody else is kneeling or bowing. And Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego standing before the king of the world, they say, but if not, we will stand. Whatever your lot is, I encourage you, church family, here this morning to be faithful to God's calling, whether you're riding into heaven on a chariot of glory like Elijah was, or whether you're riding in a dungeon like John the Baptist was, whether you're eating from the king's table like Saul, or whether you're like 
David, who's a fugitive being pursued by the king. Or whether you're like Mary, who was about to be stoned and was delivered by the hand of Jesus. Or whether you're Stephen, who gets stoned. I want to encourage you this morning to be faithful to the lot that God has given you. And don't look over your shoulder and look at other people and think, well, what about them? Or why are they able to do this? Don't be like Peter. Because Jesus will say to you, you follow me. What, what business is that of you? You follow me. You, the ball's in your court. The situation's before you. It's now your opportunity. It's your calling to stand, to pick up your cross and to follow, regardless of whether it's into paradise or into death. It's all into joy because the happiest place that you could ever be, church, is where Jesus wants you to be. Don't shirk that. Don't run away from it. Embrace it and choose to live in the fire with Jesus Christ. In Daniel chapter 3, as we finish this story, in Daniel chapter 3, and verse 24 to 25, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego abound. Mighty men of valor are summoned by the king of Babylon to grab these young boys. He instructs them to, to heat the furnace up seven times hotter. And the three Hebrew boys are taken to the, the mouth of that furnace and they're thrust in. And, and, and the furnace, you've got to understand, is so hot that the mighty men of valor, they actually they die as they throw them in. They're, they're struck down as dead. And as the king is probably basking or getting ready to bask in his triumph over these dissenters, his face goes pale. Because he looks into the furnace and what does he see? He sees them standing up, walking around. And then he looks a little bit closer, church, and what does he see? One more. Jesus is in the fire with you if you stand. No matter what life throws at you, if you stand for what's right, though the heavens fall, you can be rest assured that God stands with you. Never doubt that. You can be completely sure of it. And a minority with God is always the majority. In Daniel chapter 3, I read these verses to you this morning. Verse 24 and 25, it says, And Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. And he rose in haste and spoke, saying to his counsellors, he has to confirm with them. You know when you need to pinch yourself to see if you're awake or not? Hey guys, I'm pretty sure there were three. Um, why is there four? And they said to the king, True, O king, you're right. I, I don't know what to say about this. In verse 25 he says, Look, I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Jesus Christ. He was with them in the fire. When you stand for the right, and whenever you stand for the right church, it means that you are standing in the fire. And whenever you stand in the fire, you're standing with Jesus. You're not alone. You're never alone. Never alone. Never alone.
I'm going to read some verses to you as we close. And these are all verses, or apart from two of them from the Old Testament. I want you to listen to what God has to say. And the Lord, he is the one who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you, nor forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Deuteronomy 31.8 No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Joshua 1.5 Have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Joshua 1.9 So we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Hebrews 13.6 Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Isaiah 41.10 For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not forsake you nor destroy you, nor forget the covenant of your fathers which he swore to them. Deuteronomy 4.31 Lo, I am with you always, even to the end. Matthew 28.20 The Lord your God is in your midst, the mighty one will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. For I am persuaded neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is revealed in Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 8. I want to encourage you here this morning, church, that when you stand up for right, you're standing in the fire, and when you're standing in the fire, you're standing with Jesus. May you bow your heads with me. Father in heaven, we want to thank you so much this morning that we have all been called to stand. But we haven't been called to stand for nothing. We've been called to stand for something. And that something that you have called us to stand for is really you, Lord and the things that are important to you. Father, I pray that we may not compromise our convictions for the sake of convenience, but rather we may do what is right because it is just that. It is right. And that we may leave the consequences with you. Father, may we not have an if faith, but may we have a though faith. A faith that says, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. A faith that goes through the fire and is proven to be true. Father, whether we are riding into heaven on a chariot of glory like Elijah was or rotting in a dungeon as John the Baptist was, both ends of the spectrum, Lord, both extremes, we choose you. And in choosing you, we choose joy. And Father, I just ask and pray for every single person here today that you may fill us with your spirit. That, Father, we may be confident of this very thing, that he who's begun a good work in us will complete it unto that day. Father, may we all do just that. May we all stand. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This message was made available by the Mwellenbar Seventh-day Adventist Church. For more resources like this, visit their Facebook page. Wollumbah Seventh-day Adventist Church.
the good book we know A story about a miracle that happened long ago And we hope you'll take courage when temptation you meet There's somebody watching you strong when you're weak They wouldn't pay They went unto the will of God, so we are told They wouldn't bow They would not bow their knees to the idol made of gold They wouldn't pay They were protected by the fourth man in the fire They wouldn't bend, they wouldn't bow Prophet Daniel tells about three men who walked with God Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego before the wicked king they stood And the king commanded them bound and thrown in the fiery furnace that day But the fire was so hot that the men were slain and forced them on their way When the three were casting and the king rose up to witness this awful fate He began to tremble at what he saw and in astonished tones he spake Did we not cast three men down into the midst of that fire? Although I see four Men unheard, unbound, and walking down there. And then Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, in the fiery coals they trod. And the form of the fourth man that I see is like the Son of God. They wouldn't pay to the will of God, so we are told. They wouldn't bow. They would not bow the knees to the idol made of gold. They wouldn't burn. They were protected by the fourth man in the fire. They wouldn't bend. They wouldn't bow. They wouldn't So we are told they wouldn't bow. They would not bow the knees to the idol made of gold. They wouldn't. They were protected by the fourth man in the fire. They wouldn't bend. They wouldn't bow. They wouldn't burn. They wouldn't burn. They wouldn't burn. They held on to the will of God. So we are told they wouldn't bow. They would not bow the knees to the idol made of gold. They wouldn't They were protected by the fourth man in the fire. They wouldn't bend. Fourth Man, sung by The Crush. Coming up next, Marlita Fong will be singing Learning to Lean.
Thank you for that song, Marlita. Coming up next, Fountain View Academy will be singing Oh Brother, Be Faithful. Oh Brother, be faithful, soon Jesus will come, for whom we have waited so long. Oh, soon we shall enter our glorious home and join in the conqueror's song. Oh, brother, be faithful, for why should we prove unfaithful to him who has shown? Such deep, such unbounded and infinite love who died to redeem us his own. O brother, be faithful, the city of gold, prepared for the good and the blessed, is waiting its portals of pearl to unfold, and welcome thee into thy rest. Then, brother, prove faithful, not long shall we stay, in weariness here and forlorn. Time's dark night of sorrow is wearing away, we haste to the glorious morn. O brother, be faithful, he soon will descend, creation's omnipotent king. While legions of angels his chariot attend, and palm wreaths of victory bring. O brother, be faithful, and soon shalt thou hear thy Savior pronounce the glad word. Well done, faithful servant, thy title is clear to enter the joy of thy Lord. O brother, be faithful, eternity's years shall tell for thy faithfulness now. When bright smiles of gladness shall scatter thy tears, a coronet gleam on thy brow. O brother, be faithful, the promise is sure that waits for the faithful and try to reign with the ransomed, immortal and pure, and ever with Jesus I'm Casey Butler, and I want to share with you today something that I've learned about God. In the world of Christianity, there is a tendency to swing from one or another perspective of God and what He is like. On the one hand, Christians may emphasize the grace of God, and often those who do this will say that the law has been done away with at the cross, and we don't need to worry about keeping it. Now, even if Christians don't go so far as saying that, oftentimes there can be an emphasis on God's grace so much so that God's law just fades in the background and nothing much is said about it. And there is, there is this strong overemphasis of God's grace to the exclusion of his law. On the other hand, some people emphasize the law so much that God's grace is put in the background. And people who do this oftentimes end up having a, a dry, formal, even legalistic experience that's so focused on, on doing and trying to, to keep the law that they forget how God is gracious and, and kind and merciful to us who are, who are sinners. 
Now, it's interesting about this, this tendency, because both groups are actually emphasizing an attribute of God and his character. God is merciful. God is gracious. But God is also just, and he has a law, and he stands by his law. That is part of the stability of his government. But there's something wrong with overemphasizing one or the other of these attributes to the exclusion of the other. And let me illustrate. Say you had a clothes peg and you wanted to show someone who had never seen a clothes peg what a clothes peg is like. Well, just imagine you pick up the clothes peg, you split it apart so that you've taken undone the two wooden peg parts, uh, sides, and you've the spring in the middle, and you've split it into two different parts. And you go up to your friend and you show them just one of the part. Now, is that really going to give them the right picture of what a peg is like? I mean, they're not even going to be able to see how it works and what it does. All they're going to see is one wooden side. Or maybe one side in the spring. It's not really going to give people or your friend a clear picture, a clear understanding or illustration of what a peg is like. Well, it's the same with God. If you only emphasize one aspect of his character, you'll only get a one-sided picture of God and what he's like. So, for example, if you're overemphasizing grace so much that you're putting law in the background, then you're going to get the impression that, oh, God loves you, it doesn't matter what you do, you're going to get away with just about anything you want to do. Uh, he's not going to necessarily come around and bang you over your back if you do something wrong. You know, it's all good. That's the kind of understanding you're going to get. And God, God is going to seem just, I guess, a bit cheap in that way and, and shallow. And on the other hand, if you have just a focus on the law and, and God's justice, you might have an experience and perspective and understanding of what God is like, that he is, that, that makes you afraid because you think that he's going to be standing over your shoulder ready to beat you over the head if you do one thing out of line. And <laughs> quite frankly, you're probably going to hate God because a God like that is not a God you would want to be around. But... When you reveal both God's merciful and gracious side of his character as well as his, his justice and law, you are showing a balanced perspective. When they're both together, you get a true picture of what God is like and who he is. And it's interesting, this is very much supported by the scriptures. In Exodus, when Moses asked God to show him his glory, the Lord proclaimed his name or his character, who he is. He proclaimed it to Moses. And this is what he says in Exodus 34, verse 6 and 7. It says, And the Lord passed by before him, that is Moses, and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, 
and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and to the fourth generation. Now you would have noticed in that text that it talked about God's mercy, his goodness, long-suffering, graciousness, forgiveness, all of that, but then it said he won't clear the guilty. He will visit the iniquity of the fathers upon the children. You know, he will, he will be just in terms of, of his law and in terms of sin. So you can see as God is proclaiming who he is in his character, both of those attributes are clearly revealed. Psalms, in Psalms chapter 85, verse 10, this idea is also presented. It says, Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. This is a beautiful verse, and it's often um, quoted in connection with Christ on the cross and what he did, because in doing that, when Christ died for our sins, he was showing an ultimate act of grace to take our punishment that we deserve, to take it upon himself and let us go free. That was an ultimate act of undeserving grace. At the same time, it was an ultimate act of vindicating his law because it showed that there must be a punishment for sin. There must be a punishment for breaking and transgressing that law. And so at that one moment, God revealed his, his mercy his character of mercy, as well as his character of justice. These combined he revealed on the cross through Christ. Christ in his ministry also very much represented what God is like and represented these two attributes. In John chapter 1 verse 17, it says, For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. There you see it again, grace and truth. Truth is that which is the stable, um, solid, unchanging aspect of God's character. And it reminds us also of things like God's law and his justice. You know, those stabilizing attributes is is what is encapsulated there. And Christ, you see in his ministry, he, he went about, we're told, he went about teaching preaching and healing. Healing revealed Christ's grace and compassion for those who were sick and suffering and, you know, those merciful tender characteristics. Christ's preaching, though, and teaching revealed his truth. You know, he was preaching truth. He was preaching righteousness and repentance, all of those more solid, unchanging aspects of God he was revealing in that aspect of his ministry. So you can see that Christ revealed those dual characteristics of God in his work and life. So it is important that we see this balance clearly in our minds so that we can, first of all, for our own life, in our own spiritual walk with God, get a true picture of what he is like. And only then... Can we be able to reveal to others exactly what God is like and not present a one-sided picture that is going to distort who God is and may quite well turn people away from God because it, it just seems extreme or, or unattractive. But when we present those two aspects together in a balanced way, people will see God truly as he is and will be drawn to him. So next time you're hanging 
some clothes on the line with a clothes peg. May you remember that God's character is a beautiful balance of mercy, justice, grace, and truth. And may you be inspired to reveal this balance in your own life that others may be drawn to him. God bless you and bye for now. Listen to Bill Ackland as he reads from his book, Talking with God. The prayer we have today has a brief title, one word, blessings. And the text I have to match with this prayer is from James 1.17. Everything good and perfect is a gift from heaven and comes to us from the Father in his glorious light who does not change by the smallest degree. And then an introductory thought. As humans, we like to be well thought of, to receive tokens of the love and regard that others have for us. Thoughtfully wrapped parcels at those special times throughout the year tell us we are not forgotten. But the gifts God gives us are often so large they cannot be wrapped up in pretty paper. Rainbows, sunrises and sunsets, acres of tulips and carpets of daffodils. Let us show our gratitude to God, whose gifts are the best of all. Let us pray. Blessings, dear Lord, are many and varied, but all good things come from you. So many blessings that they cannot be counted. For trying to count the sand on the beach or the stars at night far from man-made light, is not really within the realm of possibility. The wonderful thing is that so many of your blessings are given without partiality. The sun and rain are enjoyed by the just and unjust alike. The limitless shades of flower colours are admired by the bad as well as the good. In so many other ways your love to all is revealed in the scattering of your gifts we call blessings. However, dear Father, life is so much more than things or objects, than what we can touch, see, feel, hear, taste or smell. Life is lived in heart and mind and spirit. The brain, that greatest of all computers, is always busy, 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 registering, storing, analysing, evaluating and deciding. And most of this happens without any conscious effort on our part. Beyond the brain's functionality, however, is the mind and the heart, the centre of who we are as human beings, focusing on the reasons for our decisions and giving us the ability to make choices that we trust are best for ourselves and others. So, dear Lord, blessings that touch our senses are wonderful, enjoyable and tend to happiness. Blessings of the spirit of our inner self are what give real meaning fulfilment and joy. These are the gifts from God that open up eternity to finite human beings, to lift us up from the mundane and the functional and put our lives in touch with the Creator, the one who made, sustains and enriches all things. That, dear Lord, 
is our greatest blessing, the blessing of knowing the source of life, our Saviour and our very best heavenly friend. Thank you, Lord, for your blessings. In gratefulness I pray. Amen. To obtain your copy of Talking With God, written by Bill Ackland, give us a call in Australia on 02-4973-3456 or send an email to radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au. It's been a pleasure bringing you this program here on 3ABN Australia Radio.